Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. In our current series, our teacher, Lyric Fesco, is going through the Ten Commandments and what they mean to us today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, something uh, I want to share with you today. I want to uh, impart a little bit of, of wisdom. And uh, uh, here's the wisdom that I'm going to share with you right now. And it's something that goes like this. Oftentimes, we spill our coffee. <laughs> it's that, here we, go. we got guys on. Don't worry, you don't even have to move. We, we have a pit crew here that, uh, that's going to come set you up here. That's right. You got it. <laughs> You're on the podcast, yeah. <laughs> All right, here's, here's the, uh, the bit of wisdom I, uh, I'd like to share with you. Oftentimes, good enough isn't good enough. Oftentimes, good enough isn't good enough. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Back when, when I was in college, I lived in the, uh, the city of Atlanta, and Atlanta is, is quite a, a big city. It's, it's crowded, and, and for the, uh, the college students that live around the city, that would have uh, included students from Georgia Tech and Georgia State, Emory, all kinds of other universities. There was fairly common for students, not unlike today, to move around, okay? And uh, particularly students at Georgia State, there wasn't a lot of, at the time, uh, student housing available, so students would try and, and secure their own housing, find a great deal on an apartment, move there, find a few roommates, and then all, all move in together. And then what would happen? The situation would be stable for maybe about a year. You guys know how this goes. After a year, then you figure out you hate your roommates, or you figure out there's a better deal on an apartment over there, or you, two of your three roommates are graduating and have to move and those kind of things, and so you're back at square one trying to find a place to live, so, you, so you're on the move again. Now, another element of uh, the single person just starting out or the graduate or the college student is uh, that particular demographic has no money, okay? It's very little money. And so you, you, you hire, do you hire a mover to, to relocate your stuff from apartment to apartment? Heavens no, you don't, you don't do that, right? You ask your friends, you rent a U-Haul and you, you, uh, and you do it yourself, right? That is, unless a friend of yours has a truck. And if a friend of yours has a truck, then you ask that friend, can I borrow your truck? And so now we've gone to what's the best case scenario? Maybe hiring movers, professional people to do this yourself, or a bunch of almost graduates uh, with a truck, and, and maybe that will be good enough uh, to move. Well, it just so happened that for that portion of, uh, a portion of my college career, I owned a truck. So every two weeks, it seemed I had someone asking me to borrow my truck and asking if I could help uh, them move. I wasn't crazy about the idea of loaning out my truck because, you know, it's my truck and, and it's a stick shift and all that. And, and uh, so I would just end up telling, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll help you move. I'll help you move. There was one occasion in particular where one of the single girls asked myself, along with a few other friends, if, if we could help her move. And, uh, and we obliged. I brought my truck over. We loaded up her furniture. And one of those items was a uh, chest of drawers about oh, five feet tall, okay? And uh, as an adult, I have a much better appreciation now for using the right kind of equipment to tie down furniture <laughs> and secure it to the truck bed. When you're a college student, you're, you're, you're lucky if you have a rope, okay? And, and again, this, this moving thing has become fairly routine, so you start to get sloppy, you know? And, and so instead of asking yourself questions, like notice the difference between the two questions here. Is this dresser tied down securely? Versus, is this dresser tied down securely enough? <laughs> Notice the difference? Okay, one word makes a big difference. Let's face it, no one likes moving. It's a miserable, miserable task. And so you're loading stuff up into the truck and you ask, are all these items tied down securely enough? And the answer was, sure, of course they are. Okay, that's good enough. And besides, we're not going very far. 
You see how quickly this can wind out of control here when you're being sloppy tying down furniture? Well, we determined that her, all her furniture was tied down securely enough and uh, got it in the truck sufficiently loaded. We headed down to the new place and there we are rolling down Interstate I-85 through the middle of downtown Atlanta. Uh, the road isn't bumpy. It's a, it's a fairly straight road. The traffic's not stop and go. We're moving right along about 65, 70 miles per hour when suddenly in my rear view mirror, I see that chest of drawers start to wobble like this, okay? And so do I think, do I pull over? I, I probably better pull, and no, I can't even change lanes when I see the chest of drawers just tip over the side of the, uh, the side of the truck. And before I could even change lanes or anything, that chest of drawers rocked itself over the side and onto I-85. And then in my, my side view mirror, I see something I've never seen before, and that is a rectangular chest of drawers rolling <laughs> 65 miles per hour down the interstate, disassembling as it goes, just pieces just starting to fly. And then I see cars and trucks trying to dodge it this way and that way. And then finally that very, it was a giant suburban, hits it squarely and I, I <laughs> Chester George just, just was uh, obliterated, obliterated, just blew up, completely destroyed, nothing left to salvage. You know, we even tried to pull over. We, there was nothing to pick up. We had, and so we just said, well, we owe you a new chest of drawers. <laughs> so we're in a study right now where we're going through the, the Ten Commandments and we've reached the, the, one of the commandments that falls in that category of where you can say doing only the letter of the law, doing only the letter of the law isn't good enough, okay? If you just do the minimum, so to speak, it could lead to something devastating, okay? Which commandment are we talking about today? We're talking about the Seventh Commandment, which states this. It's pretty short, simple, and sweet. It says, you shall not commit adultery, okay? So if that's the commandment, what do I mean by just doing the bare minimum and doing only the minimum is not enough? People might apply a minimum definition to adultery, and that definition might be, I'm not breaking this commandment unless I actually physically engage in a sexual act with a person who is not my husband or wife, okay? And then we'll see here in a minute that that definition isn't good enough, Okay, and as I've done with all the other commandments that we've talked about, we're going, we're going to try and do three things. Okay, we're going to try and do three things when we look at every, every commandment. First, we're going to examine what it originally meant in the original context, what it meant in the original context. And then we're going to see what it means in, in the in modern day context. And sometimes we can do them together, okay, um, because they're not much different. And I'll just tell you right now that for the remainder of the, these commandments, there's really very little difference between what the context was back then to what the context is now. The lines were a little bit more blurred when we start talking about things like idolatry, because none of us are forming idols out of silver and gold and and things like that. But we are making idols. So the context is a little bit different. Uh, so there's really very little uh, difference. Um, uh, for these commandments, rather, there's, there's, there, uh, these are the ones that have to do with how we interact with our neighbor mostly. And yes, ultimately, there's really very little contextual difference now. Uh, so we'll examine what it meant to the original audience, and we'll look at what it means to examine and, and, and uh, compare practical differences now. And then lastly, we want to always ask ourselves how Christ perfectly fulfilled this law on our behalf. If Christ came to perfectly fill the law on our behalf, that means he, he fulfilled every one of these. And so how did he do that? We want to examine how Christ fulfilled uh, those laws. And, and let me make a, a disclaimer uh, right out of the gate here. I know this might be an uncomfortable topic for some of you because many of you have lived through the pain of adultery one way or another. It, it might have been uh, um, because uh, you experienced that in your own marriage, a, a previous marriage, or it might have uh, been you that engaged in adultery or a spouse that engaged in adultery, or maybe it was a parent that was unfaithful to the other parent. So let me just say right out of the gate, uh, and I'll explain this further in a bit, this, this is a commandment that we are all guilty of breaking. This is a commandment that we are all guilty of breaking. So, so let's just level the playing field before we get into it. 
If one of us is uncomfortable with this topic, then, then we should all be, okay? But again, we'll see as we get, get through this that uh, we all have reason to rejoice too, okay? We all have reason to rejoice. Okay, so having said that, this commandment on the surface would seem to be fairly uh, straightforward commandment. Uh, we look at it with a very fairly simplistic view, but it's an original context. It meant exactly what you would expect it to mean, okay? Sexual unfaithfulness to your spouse or even to your fiance, which as you recall, this was the problem with Mary. You know, when, uh, when we read about the, 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 in the opening of the gospel accounts where Mary's being uh, is pregnant with Jesus, they suspected her of adultery even though she had just been engaged or betrothed in marriage, okay? Not only was adultery forbidden in this, uh, by this commandment, but if one was guilty of, of breaking this commandment, do you know what the, the punishment was? Death. That was death was, that was the penalty for, for committing adultery back in, in this time. That's pretty rough, isn't it? You'd think that that would be a good way to prevent adultery, right? But remember, remember the account where, where Jesus defends the, the woman who was caught in adultery? Remember what they wanted to do to her? They wanted to, wanted to stone her, okay? They wanted to stone her. And, and just like we were saying a moment ago, where did that account ultimately end up? With Jesus saying, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and they all went away. Now, there's a number of reasons why they could have all walked away. They could have walked away because perhaps they were guilty of committing adultery themselves, or, or perhaps it was something else. Perhaps the commandment goes far beyond just the preserving of the sanctity of marriage, and there's other things that, was, that they were feeling guilty about that, that relates to this. How did Jesus interpret this commandment? He told us in Matthew, this is how Jesus interpreted this commandment. This is Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard, it said, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I know most of you have probably heard that before, okay? It may not come as a surprise to you to many. Yes, I remember Jesus said that. Even, even if I look at someone lustfully, that, that constitutes adultery in my heart. Now let's ask ourselves why that is, okay? Why does Jesus elevate the commandment to this point? Why does he take it this far, okay? If, if I steal something, which we're going to talk about here in a bit too, am I still guilty of breaking that commandment if I just imagine myself stealing it? Is that a fair comparison? Why am I guilty of adultery if I just look lustfully at someone? Who wants to take a crack at that one? Why am I guilty of adultery if I'm just lustfully looking at someone? Anyone have a guess? Yeah. Actions come from thoughts of the heart. Actions come from thoughts of the heart. So it's not just that thinking something in a vacuum will remain in a vacuum, but that you're then wanting to make, have an impulse and, and act on that, that thought. Is that what you're saying? Someone else? Any other thoughts? Well, yeah. The law is to love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. <laughs> and so every other law falls under that. And if you said don't commit adultery and you're thinking about it, you are not obeying with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. You're still falling short of, of what, the, what the requirement is. You're still, if this is the requirement, don't commit adultery, you're still coming in beneath that, even if it's only an act of the heart. Someone else? Yeah, Brian. I would say that it's uh, probably a nick in the armor, so to speak, because when you open yourself up to mm -hmm. thinking it, the enemy sees that as a vulnerability and then you can play on that from there. And it's just a, it's a, it's a uh, ball rolling downhill at that point. When we, when we talk about Christian, uh, Christians being narrow-minded, this is what we're discussing in the current sermon series right now, this is one area where that accusation is put on us perhaps the most. We aren't as progressive as the world wants us to be in this area. All right, why are we so tightly wound up with this commandment? 
okay? The world looks at us and says, man, you guys are so stuck in the dark ages in this area. Times have changed. Culture has changed. Why can't you change with the times, okay? And then our answer most of the time, our answer as Christians most of the time is something like, well, God defined marriage to be between one man and one woman and, and for as long as they both shall live. That's how God defined marriage. And that's usually as far as we take the argument. That's, uh, that's where we stop at it. Okay, and if you think about it, if you're engaged in that kind of argument, whether it has to do with adultery or any other kind of uh, sexual behavior that is outside of the, the, the way that God has defined it, you know, what, what is your defense? What is it you're going to try and say other than, well, that's just how God designed it? Do you have a, do you have a better argument than that? That's, that's, that's how God defined it, and that's where we stop. But do we ever wonder why God defined it that way? Why did God define it that way? It's the why behind God's definition that makes us so narrow-minded about it. It's the why behind why we're so narrow-minded about sexuality is, is because of the spiritual component. The spiritual component. And what is a spiritual component, okay? First, let's ask ourselves what sex is. Okay, it's, it's a God-ordained way to non-verbally, non-verbally for a man to say to a woman, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And if you want to understand what sexual immorality is, you have to understand this. You have to understand what sexual morality is, what sex is supposed to be as God ordained it, okay? It, it's, a, it's a unitive act, and it's a unitive act of commitment. Now, this might sound crazy when you first hear it. This might sound crazy when you first hear it, but this is a biblical concept, okay? But sex is just a way in which God gives us a little hint of what it's going to be like to meet him and see him face to face. Do you realize that? The Bible teaches that. Why did God invent sex? To give us a faint echo of what it's going to be like to know him. Okay, and this is all over the Bible. This is all over the Bible. God says to Israel in the Old Testament, you are my bride, I am your husband. God says to the church in the New Testament, you are the bride, Christ is the husband. Romans 7 explicitly says that Jesus Christ and the church are related the way a husband is related to a wife. And that doesn't mean that one party asks another party to do some chores. It's really talking about intimacy here. This is, this is, this is really the difference between this is what sets a man and a, and a wife apart. It's that intimate component. It's what makes them, they're not just good buddies. They're not just great roommates. This is what he's talking about. When, when he compares uh, uh, Christ as a husband and, and, and the, the church as the wife. Now, why does that make us blush a little bit when we first, first think about that? Because it's because of what we've turned sex into. Okay, we as a society have turned sex into something taboo where God, as he designed it, it's meant to point to him. It's meant to point to our relationship with him. Okay? So therefore, all misuses of sexuality, all of it, all misuses of sexuality, whether it's adultery, uh, which is what adultery is, is, is sexual misconduct that, that distorts our knowledge of God. God means for human sexuality to be a pointer and a foretaste of our relationship with Him, okay? And if this is true, if this is true, if this is the image that God is painting for us and an image of our relationship to, to Him, do you see why He's so protective of it? Okay? Do you see how it becomes a spiritual transaction? And do you see why even thinking about doing something else tarnishes that transaction? Okay? Do you remember why Moses wasn't permitted to go in the promised land? Do you remember this account? What did he do? Okay, initially, the people of Israel were complaining that they were thirsty. Okay? And so what did, what did God tell Jesus to What did God tell Moses to do? Go, take that rod, strike the rock, and what would happen when you strike the rock? 
water would come forth. Do you see what this is? This is a, a, a foreshadowing of, of Jesus himself. Okay, Jesus, the rock, would be stricken, and what would happen? Water would come forth from Jesus' side. That is an image of Christ. That is a foreshadowing of what God was doing in that moment, foreshadowing Christ. Okay, and then what happened? Sometime later, the people of, of Israel, the Israelites, were, were complaining again that they were thirsty. And so then God told Moses, now I want you to go speak to the rock. Don't strike the rock. Go speak to the rock. And so what did Moses do? Moses went over there and he took his rod and he, he struck the rock. He struck the rock again. How many times was Christ crucified? Once and for all. Do you see what Moses is doing there? He's, he's, he's messing with an image of God. He's distorting an image of God here. He's making something of God that is not the way that God designed it to be. And he's distorting it. He's messing it up. And he strikes the rock. And then God says, it's not what I said to do. And for that, for that alone, Moses was then not permitted to go into the promised land. After all of that, after everything he'd been through, after the 40 years of wandering around, he says, you mess with me like that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you're not going into the promised land because he, he, he messed with an image of God. And so, and so, do you see how serious and protective God is of his, of his own image, of his own pure and holy, righteous image? Okay, this is why he's so narrow-minded about sexuality, because it speaks to something of who he is and who he is to us, okay? Anything, I'm gonna pause right there and see if there's any thoughts or comments or anything so far. Carolyn. I missed the beginning. Have you already done First Corinthians six? No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Clearly states what you're saying. Yeah. Go ahead. I love showing that what you're saying is there. <laughs> Thank you. She's she's like my lawyer. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Let me show. So in uh, First Corinthians six, and then really into seven also, but Paul says. Um, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Mm -hmm. There again, it's making that comparison of horizontal intimacy intimacy with God. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just all wrapped up in, like, our unity with God. Mm-hmm. And then who are we united with here on earth? Mm-hmm. And, so, and this is why. This, this exactly, this is why we, as Christians, are so, should be so protective of, of sexuality. Because of what it is, not just on a physical level, not just what it is on an emotional level, but what it is on the spiritual level too. Because it's a spiritual transaction going on that says something about our relationship with God and, and how He designed His relationship to be with His bride. And so anytime we, we, we monkey with that, anytime we work outside of that framework, we are monkeying with the very image of God. Okay? So Luke. Mm-hmm. I love the connection to Moses because he, he, he struck the rock in anger with the people grumbling against him mm-hmm. and he took something that was for to sit under God's revelation of himself and God's mm-hmm. gifting and he made it about his 
he made himself central to it. Right. Which is exactly what we do. The same thing in sexuality, yep. Instead of being about God and other. Like Instead of spouse, existing on the vertical plane, now we're trying to make it exclusively about me. Yep. And no commitment. That's right. That's exactly uh, it. Nice. Any other thoughts or, or comments or observations on that? Any questions? And that's a lot to think about. Yes, Margaret. I think of the union, and then I carried it over to the sperm and the egg, mm -hmm. and that's another union. And then it's a different DNA, but... It's now one. It's now joined as one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a, a great thought. Thank you, Margaret. So now let's, let's talk about this, okay? How did Christ fulfill this on our behalf? How did Christ obey this law perfectly and fulfill it on our behalf? Now, again, some of these might seem obvious to you. You might think, well, he, he, didn't, he remained pure his whole, his whole life. He didn't, he didn't break this commandment, right? Is there anything else that we can say or anything else that we can draw out of this? How did Christ perfectly fulfill this on our behalf? Christ is that? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, he repeatedly said that he and the Father are one. Mm -hmm. So that is an image of the oneness of a, a sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. and, and he never strayed from that relationship. He was true to that relationship his, his, whole, his whole life on earth, and, and even now. Uh, Christ is our groom, okay? And we are his church. We are his bride. And one day, according to Revelation 19, Christ will return for his bride. He's, he's always been faithful to us, always will be faithful to us, and we, we long for that day and wait for that day when, when we will we'll be brought together and we'll, we'll consummate that relationship. And, and Paul reinforces his idea in, in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is what Christ did. This is what Christ did for his bride, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ was faithful to his bride, you, in every single way. Okay, to the point that he died for her. He died for her, made her holy. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. He put, he put now think about this again on, on that plane and, and on this plane too that we're talking about here. He died for her. He put her needs ahead of his own. Okay, and that's the root of our observance of the seventh commandment. Putting love of, of, uh, for our spouses ahead of our wants and our needs and, and our desires because that's what he did for us. Okay, yeah, Luke, one more. I heard, a, I heard a professor this weekend talking about this and, and this picture of Adam laid out and God putting him to sleep and tearing or taking out of his side his perfect bride. And you have that image of Christ on the cross and out of his ribbon side. Mm -hmm. He is perfectly united to his bride, the church, mm -hmm. and he's always been teaching. Always, that. yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Before I go on, before I go on the Eighth Commandment, I started out by saying that we've all broken this in some way or another. So how, how, does, that, how does that work? Is, can I see a show of hands of everyone who's looked lustfully upon? No, no, no. <laughs> I think surely we could probably say that, you know, many of us, if not all, could fall into that bucket one way or another. But how have we as, as a church, how, how have we broken this commandment? How have we been unfaithful to our groom? How, 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 how do you do that? Have we been unfaithful to Jesus? I mean, how many, how many ways can we imagine right now? How many ways can we contemplate on a daily basis that we do this? And so that's why I say in this respect, you know, when we talk about the law right now, we say that, you know, that first half is, is, uh, is, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second half is love your neighbor as yourself. Really, you get to see how, how these commandments, what we start to get into it, it really is all about 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That even though these are sort of neighbor-focused, they still lead us back to, to Christ and our relationship with Christ. And that's exactly how it is. We are cheaters. We're cheaters. We cheat on, on, on our, our groom. We do it all the time, every day. And so we are all guilty of, of, uh, of breaking this, this commandment in, in one way or another. Yeah, Sean. I have a question. So how does the looking lustfully work before you're married in just terms of attraction in general? Mm-hmm. Um, how does that you work? You know that, that gray line yeah. in your mind? or Because, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being attracted. No, and I don't, I don't, think, that's the, I don't think that's the definition of what lust is. Yeah. Lust goes beyond just uh, the first look. As, as I, I feel like I've heard someone say, I don't know who said that the first look is free or something like that. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> Yeah. Right. Right. If the bird lands on your head, it's not. If the bird lands on your head, it's not your fault. But if it builds a nest, it is. But if it builds a nest, it is your fault. Yeah. So that's what I think the distinction is between you know admiration and then lust. Lust is 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 now engaging the mind, and when you engage the mind and start building a nest, now you now you've engaged in something beyond just uh, uh, well, that's an attractive person. You know, now you're doing something with it. Now, now you're now you're monkeying with that that image that uh, that God created to to be holy. You know, yeah, Carolyn. Can I do it again? Yes, go ahead. Don't even. One fourteen and fifteen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Yeah. Then desire, when it is has conceived, gives birth to sin. Mm-hmm. So he's not equating the two. Right. He's saying. Like, yeah, you're going to have desires. Mm-hmm. God made us to be mm-hmm. people who have desires. But when it has conceived, which brings me back to Margaret's point of, like, there's something else going on there, right? right? Like, there's, there, there's, it's not just the desire. It is linked to, right. like, giving into it, feeding it, action. There's something else contributing. So when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully <coughs> brings forth. That. Yeah, that's James 1, right? Yeah. 14 and okay, James 1, 14, 15. Excellent. And so even if you think about the way Christ was tempted, it's not the thought. The thought was placed there. But what did he do with the thought? He shut it down. He shut it down with Scripture every step of the way. So the temptation itself is not the, it's not the issue. It's what, what, that, what that is then conceived and then becomes and then is born into. That's, that's the... So you might know when you cross that line, maybe not like as you're crossing, but the moment you cross it is when it becomes an object and with any of the commandments. When it becomes an object centered on you mm-hmm. with nothing to do with God and nothing to do with the other right. person. It just becomes an object of gratification and worship of yourself. And now we've, we've gone back to idolatry. This is exactly, they all lead back to the, the central theme. All right, let's go to the next one. Unless there's any other thoughts or comments on that one. Okay, yeah. Another word that sometimes is helpful is when we entertain it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something that's one thing. If you're entertaining it. And you're almost talking about feeding it. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to get this image of the bird nest in my head now. Never. That's it. That's exactly it. All right. This is the eighth commandment. This comes from Exodus 20:15. It simply states, "You shall not steal." Okay. Now, we all know what this means, right? It's pretty straightforward. We we know what stealing is. Uh, it was only earlier this week. I was at work and I got a text message from my younger son. Uh, it came through uh, Tracy's phone. It says, this is Logan. You know, that's what he does now for texting. He says, uh, this, this text message was, he says, hey, Dad, look what I got at school today. And then the next thing that came through in, the, in this message was a picture of a football. Okay, so Logan got a football at school somehow. How does one acquire a football at school? I do not know. When I went to school, they did not hand out footballs. 
not for free, right? But then again, they do math differently now, so I don't know. Who knows, who knows what goes on? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. He got the football. He got the football. Uh, the one that he got wasn't just an ordinary football. It was an official NFL football marked with the official NFL logo and everything. Now, here's the thing about that. Those footballs aren't cheap. And so I said to him, that's an official NFL football. And he said, yeah, I know. (laughs) And then I said to him, Logan, how did you get that? That's an expensive football. And then I quickly looked on the Internet to see what an official NFL football is going for. Anyone want to guess on that right now? About 100 bucks, anywhere from 100 to 150 bucks is what you'll find this, this football folks. So, so join with me here. Logan went to school. When he was at school, he somehow acquired a brand new football worth about $100. And then he learned some stuff, and then he came home. That, that, was, the, that was the day for my son. So I asked him, how did you get that football? And he said, a kid gave it to me. Okay, so a kid just gave it to you. Do you know this kid? I've seen him around, but I don't know him really well. So he just gave it to you. Where were you? Just in the hallway, he walked up to me and said, hey, do you want this football? Here it is. It's yours. And then he just walked off. Now, I didn't just roll into town and fall off the turnip truck, right? And neither did you, right? Kids don't just give $100 footballs to strangers, am I right? Okay. Now, here's what I want to ask you. If Logan kept that football, which he did not, his mom took it to the office the next day. If Logan took that, if Logan kept that football, would Logan be guilty of stealing? If Logan kept that football, would Logan be guilty of stealing? Brian? I would say yes, because his conviction would probably tell him eventually. Uh-huh. Uh, this wasn't quite the real deal. Okay. You don't think it was a real deal? I mean, that doesn't happen to you. Someone else? Yeah? I'm inclined to believe that he wouldn't be guilty so long as he was not aware <laughs> that the gifting was less than legal or ethical. This moment is not lost on me that Chip the lawyer... Point taken. All right. Someone else? Yeah. Yeah. It's a police officer. Oh, the police officer. Let's ignorance ask the police of the former. Ignorance of the law does innocence. not equal innocence. Okay. All right. So you see, stealing is not cut and dry. You know, when we look at the Ten Commandments and we see thou shalt not steal, seems simple enough, right? But it's, there's always a scenario that it's not quite cut and dry. Okay, sure. Naturally, uh, this is... Why, why do you think... Let me ask you this. Why do you think God tells us not to steal? Ultimately, why does he tell us that? Why are we told not to steal? Why do you think he forbids that, Josh? The sanctity of private property. The sanctity of private property. And so ultimately what we're getting back to here is, is what, what does the sanctity of private property have to do with us as Christians? If I'm taking something from my brother, what am I doing to my brother? Mm-hmm. Am I, am I, what am, I, am I loving my brother in that moment? You're, you're devaluing his work. I'm devaluing his work, devaluing his, his property. I'm, I'm doing harm to my brother. Okay. Now, that's not a good way to treat your brother, sure. Taking something from your, your, your neighbor that does not belong to you, that, that seems simple enough. That's why God tells us not to do it. It does harm to, to your brother. Okay. If I, if I, if I steal something from, from Luke, I've done something to harm our relationship. But what statement have I made about my relationship to God? 
that I am not trusting God to provide. Do you see how this doesn't just exist here on the horizontal plane? There's something going on here in the vertical plane too, because if I'm taking something from you that God did not provide me, that God did not sovereignly and divinely give to me, and I'm now taking matters into my own hands and now providing myself for that thing, ultimately, who am I saying that I don't trust? I'm ultimately saying I don't trust God. God didn't give that to me, okay? I'm taking matters into my own hands. So now, if Logan keeps that football, okay, is it stealing? By the letter of the law, no, it's not stealing. He's not going to go to jail for theft, and if it happened exactly the way that it happened, he, he, he probably won't even get in trouble for it, okay? But I have a feeling, and, and so do you, okay, that perhaps there were some dishonest components to how that football was obtained uh, by this other individual that, that gave it to him. So to keep that football is contributing to the loss okay, is contributing to the loss that someone else is experiencing. You're still causing harm to your neighbor. And second, if that football was obtained through dishonest means, I have trouble believing that God wanted my son, if that God wanted my son to have an official NFL football, that he wouldn't accomplish that through such shady circumstances, you know, <laughs> right? So, so the keeping of the football, which might have been obtained dishonestly, would ultimately be an act of, of distrusting God, that God would, would use dishonest means to provide for you. Okay, that's a distrust in, 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 uh, in the way that I look at God. Exodus goes on to define all the ways that we can be guilty of stealing. This is Exodus 20, uh, verse 15. I was going to guess 15, but yeah, 15. Uh, and, but then after that, in Exodus 21, it goes on to tell us all the uses. So for instance, if uh, this is absolute law, okay, here's, here's the letter of the law. And then in Exodus 21, we have what's called causistic law or what our lawyer friends might call case law, okay? It's sort of an if-then setup. If your ox kills your neighbor's chicken, uh, then the penalty would be, and then they, they articulate all that. So in Acts or, uh, uh, chapter 20, we receive the law, and then beginning in 21, we get all the examples of how that plays out in different scenarios. Exodus 21, 16, we're given an example of how this commandment is addressed. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and, and anyone found in his possession of him shall be put to death. Okay, so kidnapping a person... Right, and then selling him, her into slavery violates the eighth commandment. Joseph's brothers, you might recall in the Old Testament, Genesis uh, was was guilty of breaking this commandment. Other examples were given, both in the causistic portion of the law and other parts of the Bible, were were the prohibition of of stealing land by moving property markers. See that in Job. Or, or stealing livestock in Exodus 22. Another violation of this commandment was stealing wages or failing to give employees a fair wage. All right, this is uh, Jeremiah 22:13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him uh, his wages. And all kinds of other, there's all kinds of, you're using false weights, you know, to, to, to make sure that your, your neighbor gives you the right amount of in, in trade, but then using false weights to, 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 to treat, this is directly uh, mentioned in Deuteronomy 25, okay? So there's all kinds of ways that we can uh, conceive of and, and think about what stealing looks like. It's not always just, I'm going to snatch this from you, but it's ultimately how it goes back and how it relates to God and how we put our trust in Him and, and His provision for us. Yeah. Somebody, somebody last week had also brought up the point of um, David and Saul. Mm-hmm. Now David had been promised the kingdom, but it was not, he wasn't going to use his ways to accomplish it. Right. He, he Great example. Until... God mm-hmm. did what God said he was going to do, not I need to take charge of this and do this my way and accomplish what I want mine. And same thing with Abraham and Sarah, too, where, a- where Abraham was promised that he would, he would 
how they, uh, an heir. But what did they do? They still tried to take matters into their own. That's what stealing is. It's trying to, even, even if you believe that God ultimately has something in store for you, taking matters into your own hands to get you there uh, is not the way God intended for that to work. Ultimately, it's a, it's a statement of trust in God. It does harm to my brother if I engage in stealing, but ultimately, it's a matter of me not trusting God and, and his provision for me and the timing of his provision, too. That's, that's where we draw the lines. So any, anything else before we get on to real quick on how, we, uh, how Christ fulfilled this, this law for us? Yeah, go ahead, Jan. It's a Latin term that's applied to sin. It's intravata se. It's wow. curved in upon itself. Curved in upon itself. And it just I means stealing, adultery, uh-huh. coveting, it's all turned in on you. And, and again, we, and we're going right back to where we started with, with idolatry. It's all, it's all about gratification, what I can't live out in the moment, what I'm not placing my trust in God for, but now I'm taking matters in my own hands to serve self. Yeah. And you could even add manipulation to that list. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you try to manipulate a circumstance to, for a certain outcome. It's stealing. It's yep. stealing. Mm-hmm. And it's um, overlooking the sovereignty of God and trying to take the circumstances in your own hands. Right. Great point. There goes the choir. Thank you, choir. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Let's consider how Christ, will, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed, let's consider how Christ perfectly fulfilled this law on our behalf. Of course, he never stole anything. He never stole anything physically, right? Or, or emotionally or, or, or virtually or, or otherwise. Let's take that one step further. Listen, again, I keep coming back to this verse over and over and over again. This is my favorite verse in the Bible, I believe, and I feel like it applies in so many scenarios. It's not this one. I'm skipping one over here. It's this one. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. I'll tell you, tell you how, how this kind of pulls together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you know how it reads in the King James Version? It says, Who, being in the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. When we think about Christ's obedience to the will of his Father, we have to look at it in comparison to the disobedience of of the first Adam, okay? In the garden, Adam took what God had not given him, okay? Christ, though equal with God, did not count his equality with God as something to be grasped. Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness to create food, to worship Satan, and throw himself off the top of the temple. And in all three temptations, Jesus was offered a shortcut to power, possessions, and authority. Okay? In each temptation, Christ refrained from taking what he more than arguably had a right to take. He was equal with God. Instead, he did not steal and take what was not his to take for that moment in time. He gave back what was rightfully belonging to his father. He gave back what he knew he could only receive through suffering and dying on the cross. He didn't shortcut it, okay? So rather than taking from others, we have to be generous with our possessions, freely giving our time, money, and belongings as we reflect that generosity, kindness, and that love that our our heavenly father and savior have, have given to us, okay? We should not steal but give abundantly uh, in all that we have, in all that we possess. And that's exactly what Christ did for us. Any other thoughts or comments as we, we close that out? What do we have that we weren't given? 
What do we have that we weren't given? Every single day. I tell my children that every single day because they, they, they so are, they're just greedy little monsters. <laughs> they don't want to share. It's in spite, we can point out the number of things that we've just lavished upon them. And then when they, when they get time to, like, <laughs> of all things, this morning it was, uh, uh, just shows you how healthy we are, uh, some microwave bacon. You know, Jack was trying to lay claim to that microwave because Logan wanted some. That's my bacon, he said. <laughs> I can remind him, you have nothing here. You, none of this is yours. It's all mine. If I want, that, that bacon doesn't have your name on it. Look, consider all you've been given, you know? And then why would you hold, be tight-fisted to anything, right? Especially microwave bacon. Right? Any other thoughts or comments? All right, good. If you have any other thoughts or comments that you want to come struggle through with me, I'm happy to work through those as best I can with you. Um, who'd like to close us in prayer? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.